Welcome to the preamble episode number two. Hope everyone is doing well. Man, oh man, have things just gotten out of control. I feel like I can say that pretty much any week. But this past week had no shortage of absolute craziness. I wanted to start off with this clip, partially because it's hilarious and partially because it's instructive. Uh, There was some kid on uh, TikTok, I say kid, but he looks like he's at least 25, probably 30, who uh, I guess was lecturing his followers on the fact that uh, as a white guy, he is racist and he is the oppressor. Give it a listen. Exactly. I am the oppressor. I am racist. Oh my God, he just said he's racist. It shouldn't be this hard, you guys. If you live in America, went to school, participate in the socioeconomic structures, participate in any sort of system, education, business, entertainment, what have you, and you are white, you are indoctrinated, you are oppressive, and yes, you are racist. It is something that we have learned, either consciously or subconsciously, all of us as white Americans. And what we have to do is unlearn that. I'm trying to do the work. Part of doing the work is pushing against dangerous narratives that are counterintuitive to that unlearning, like white people are also oppressed by racism. We're not. We are the oppressors. That's the point. You should be doing the unlearning too. Do the work. Okay, wow. Well, first of all, this guy sounds like a white supremacist himself. He really sounds like he might be part of the alt-right. We are the oppressors. It's like he's saying, we will do the oppressing around here. White people are the oppressors. Don't think anyone's going to take away that position from us. But as I think should be obvious, this is not a person that is happy. This is a deeply unhappy person who is deeply troubled and bothered by something, likely his own demons. First of all, he's yelling. He's raising his voice, so obviously he's very upset about something. And he thinks that if he just raises his voice to the correct decibel level, that somehow that will make his ideas more appealing and convincing. The clapping is part of this, the wild sort of gesticulating and hand motions. You can't see it because you don't see the video, it's just the audio, but you did hear the clapping. And... Uh, of course, he drops in the the popular phrase amongst uh, woke-tivists, which is do the work. Presumably do the work. The work here means uh, the work of anti-racism, right? So that means speaking out if you're white, educating yourself, unlearning racism, as he refers to, not speaking if you're white. Obviously kind of kind of confusing, I know, if you are supposed to speak out if you're white, but then don't speak if you're white. All right. Abolish the patriarchy, confront injustice and oppression. Just generally get woke, stay woke, and this uh, list of work can become quite lengthy, honestly. But um, it should just be obvious to anyone with normal psychological development, anyone who's just a normal person socially, that this is a deeply unhappy person, right? And he, in order to escape his own unhappiness, Uh, Rather than face whatever underlying issues uh, he's dealing with, as we all are, he seeks the distraction of forcing conformity on everyone else, convincing them that they are in fact part of an oppressive class if they are white. Now obviously, the underlying sort of ideology that's being presented here is, as he says, that if you participate in any of these systems, 
right? It doesn't matter what your intent is. The idea of racism has changed. No longer does racism mean that you treat people uh, with reference to their race, right? Or you mistreat, you mistreat people based on the color of their skin. No, it means that any system that results in disparate outcomes by race is inherently a racist system. This is the new idea of anti-racism that is uh, being proposed. So those systems are racist, and if you participate in them, then you are racist. Of course, how this means that anyone who isn't white isn't also participating in racism, I'm not sure. Because if you're participating in the system, then you are perpetuating racism yourself. Now, of course, there's so many things here that are just patently absurd. If you look at the work of Thomas Sowell, who's one of the most prolific writers and one of the greatest sociologists, I guess, and uh, economists, certainly, he has a book called Discrimination and Disparities, in which he lays out very cogently the what for some people is the uncomfortable fact that human nature and human social life is such that there are disparities everywhere. Disparities abound in nature. And as a matter of fact, there's a certain absurdity in being laser focused on the disparities between white people and black people. Because we can, of course, break people up into more and more specific groups. And we can see, for example, Thomas Sowell points out that you can have second generation West Indians living in the same city as other black Americans. And he showed that they were earning 58% more. So they were both being treated to whatever degree badly by white people. Uh, whatever, whatever system that you propose exists to hold black people back applies to them equally. And yet here we had a group of people that were earning close to 60% more than other black Americans in the same city that they were living in. So the point is that looking at disparities in this very simplistic way of just taking all white people, all black people, or whatever the case may be, and comparing incomes or other metrics of, of success is silly because it ignores the cultural factors that may be at play. Uh, it ignores the fact that, for example... Uh, there's a similar uh, dynamic with people who are immigrants from Jamaica. They uh, tend to be disproportionately intelligent, disproportionately hardworking. Whatever the traits are that you get from being someone who comes from Jamaica to New York, for example, you have a set of attributes that makes that population differ. And so the idea of just looking at disparities and even worse, cherry-picking the groups that you are going to compare by some metric is really absurd. And that is what they tend to do when they advance the ideas of there being systemic racism, right? It is no longer the idea that uh, there is inequality in the sense that people are being barred access to the same rights and opportunities, but instead it's saying that whatever it is, if the system is such that the result is any kind of disparity, then that system is by definition racist, which, which is absurd. And, and that's the idea that Thomas Sowell 
essentially destroys uh, in, in his book on discrimination and disparities. And I'll just actually read a little bit from his book where he lays out, again, very convincingly, the fact that disparities exist in all of nature. And the, the very idea that we could get rid of all disparities is, is just an absurd idea. So it's chapter one, disparities and prerequisites. The fact that economic and other outcomes often differ greatly among individuals, groups, institutions, and nations poses questions to which many people give very different answers. At one end of a spectrum of explanations offered is the belief that those who have been less fortunate in their outcomes are genetically less capable. At the other end of the spectrum is the belief that those less fortunate are victims of other people who are more fortunate. In between, there are many other explanations offered. But whatever the particular explanation offered, there seems to be general agreement that the disparities found in the real world differ greatly from what might be expected by random chance. Yet the great disparities in outcomes found in economic and other endeavors need not be due to either comparable disparities in innate capabilities or comparable disparities in the way people are treated by other people. The disparities can also reflect the plain fact that success in many kinds of endeavors depends on prerequisites peculiar to each endeavor, and a relatively small difference in meeting those prerequisites can mean a very large difference in outcomes. Prerequisites and Probabilities When there is some endeavor with five prerequisites for success, then by definition the chances of success in that endeavor depend on the chances of having all five of those prerequisites simultaneously. Even if none of these prerequisites is rare, for example, if these prerequisites are all so common that chances are two out of three that any given person has any of those five prerequisites, nevertheless, the odds are against having all five of the prerequisites for success in that endeavor. When the chances of having any one of the five prerequisites are two out of three, as in this example, the chance of having all five is two-thirds multiplied by itself five times. That comes out to be 32 over 243 in this example, or about one out of eight. In other words, the chances of failure are about seven out of eight. This is obviously a very skewed distribution of success and nothing like a normal bell curve of distribution of outcomes that we might expect otherwise. What does this little exercise in arithmetic mean in the real world? One conclusion is that we should not expect success to be evenly or randomly distributed among individuals, groups, institutions, or nations in endeavors with multiple prerequisites, which is to say, most meaningful endeavors. And if these are indeed prerequisites, then having four out of five prerequisites means nothing as far as successful outcomes are concerned. In other words, people with most of the prerequisites for success may nevertheless be utter failures. Whether a prerequisite that is missing is complex or simple, its absence can negate the effect of all the other prerequisites that are present. If you are illiterate, for example, all the other good qualities that you may have in abundance count for nothing in many, if not most, careers today. As late as 1950, more than 40% of the world's adult population were still illiterate. That included more than half of the adults in Asia and Africa. If you are not prepared to undergo the extended toil and sacrifice that some particular endeavor may require, then despite having all the native potential for great success in that endeavor, and with all the doors of opportunity wide open, you can nevertheless become an utter failure. Not all the prerequisites are necessarily within the sole control of the individual who has them or does not have them. Even extraordinary capacities in one or some of the prerequisites can mean nothing in the ultimate outcome in some endeavors. Back in the early 20th century, for example, Professor Lewis M. Terman of Stanford University launched a research project 
that followed 1,470 people with IQs of 140 and above for more than half a century. Data on the careers of men in this group, from a time when full-time careers for women were less common, showed serious disparities even within this rare group, all of whom had IQs within the top 1%. Some of these men had highly successful careers. Others had more modest achievements, and about 20% were clearly disappointments. Of 150 men in this less successful category, only 8 received a graduate degree, and dozens of them received only a high school diploma. A similar number of the most successful men in Terman's group received 98 graduate degrees, more than a tenfold disparity among men who were all in the top 1% in IQ. Meanwhile, two men who were tested in childhood and who failed to make the 140 IQ cutoff level later earned Nobel Prizes, as none of the men with IQs of 140 and above did. Clearly then, all the men in Terman's group had at least one prerequisite for that extraordinary achievement, namely a high enough IQ, and, equally clearly, there must have been other prerequisites that hundreds of these men with IQs in the top 1% did not have. As for factors behind differences in educational and career outcomes within Terman's group, the biggest differentiating factor was in family backgrounds. Men with the most outstanding achievements came from middle-class and upper-class families and were raised in homes where there were many books. Half of their fathers were college graduates at a time when that was far more rare than today. Among those men who were least successful, nearly one-third had a parent who had dropped out of school before the eighth grade. Even extraordinary IQs did not eliminate the need for other prerequisites. Sometimes what is missing may be simply someone to point an individual with great potential in the right direction. An internationally renowned scholar once mentioned at a social gathering that when he was a young man, he had not thought about going to college until someone else urged him to do so, nor was he the only person of exceptional ability of whom that was true. Some other people, including people without his great abilities, would automatically apply to college if they came from particular social groups where that was a norm. But without that one person who urged him to seek higher education, this particular internationally renowned scholar might well have become a fine automobile mechanic or a worker in some other manual occupation, but not a world-class scholar. There may be more or less of an approximation of a normal bell curve as far as how many people have any particular prerequisite, and yet a very skewed distribution of success based on having all the prerequisites simultaneously. This is not only true in theory, empirical evidence suggests that it is true also in practice. In golf, for example, there is something of an approximation of a bell curve when it comes to the distribution of such examples of individual skills as the number of putts per round of golf or driving distances off the tee. And yet there is a grossly skewed distribution of outcomes requiring a whole range of golf skills, namely winning professional golfers association tournaments. Most professional golfers have never won a single PGA tournament in their entire lives, while just three golfers, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, and Tiger Woods, won more than 200 PGA tournaments between them. Moreover, there are similarly skewed distributions of peak achievements in baseball and tennis, among other endeavors. Given multiple prerequisites for many human endeavors, we should not be surprised if economic or social advances are not evenly or randomly distributed among individuals, groups, institutions, or nations at any given time. Nor should we be surprised if the laggards in one century forge ahead in some later century, or if world leaders in one era become laggards in another era. When the gain or loss of just one prerequisite can turn failure into success, or turn success into failure, it should not be surprising, in a changing world, if the leaders and laggards of one century or millennium exchange places in some later century or millennium. If the prerequisites themselves change over time, with the development of new kinds of endeavors, or if advances in human knowledge revolutionize existing endeavors, 
the chance of a particular pattern of success and failure becoming permanent may be greatly reduced. Perhaps the most revolutionary change in the evolution of human societies was the development of agriculture within the last 10% of the existence of the human species. Agriculture made possible the feeding of concentrated populations in cities, which in turn have been and remain the sources of most of the landmark scientific, technological, and other advances of the human race that we call civilization. The earliest known civilizations arose in geographic settings with strikingly similar characteristics. These include river valleys subject to annual floodings, whether in ancient Mesopotamia, in the valley of the Indus River, on the Indian subcontinent in ancient times, along the Nile in ancient Egypt, or in the Yellow River Valley in ancient China. Clearly, there were other prerequisites, since these particular combinations of things had not produced agriculture or civilizations dependent on agriculture for most of the existence of the human species. Genetic characteristics peculiar to the races in these particular locations hardly seem likely to be the key factor, since the populations of these areas are by no means in the forefront of human achievements today. Patterns of very skewed distributions of success have long been common in the real world, and such skewed outcomes contradict some fundamental assumptions on both the political left and right. People on opposite sides of many issues may both assume a background level of probabilities that is not realistic. Yet the flawed perception of probabilities and the failure of the real world to match expectations derived from that flawed perception can drive ideological movements, political crusades, and judicial decisions up to and including decisions by the Supreme Court of the United States where, quote, disparate impact statistics showing different outcomes for different groups have been enough to create a presumption of discrimination. In the past, similar statistical disparities were enough to promote genetic determinism, from which came eugenics, laws forbidding interracial marriages, and, where there were other prerequisites for monumental catastrophe, the Holocaust. In short, gross disparities among peoples in their economic outcomes, scientific discoveries, technological advances, and other achievements have inspired efforts at explanation that span the ideological spectrum. To subject these explanations to the test of facts, it may be useful to begin by examining some empirical evidence about disparities among individuals, social groups, institutions, and nations. Empirical Evidence Behind many attempts to explain and change glaring disparities in outcomes among human beings is the implicit assumption that such disparities would not exist without corresponding disparities in either people's genetic makeup or in the way they are treated by other people. These disparities exist both among individuals and among aggregations of people organized into institutions of various sorts, ranging from families to businesses to whole nations. Skewed distributions of outcomes are also common in nature, in outcomes over which humans have no control, ranging from lightning to earthquakes and tornadoes. People. While it might seem plausible that equal or at least comparable outcomes would exist among people in various social groups, in the absence of some biased human intervention or some genetic differences affecting those people's outcomes, neither belief survives the test of empirical evidence. A study of National Merit Scholarship finalists, for example, found that among finalists from five-child families, the firstborn was the finalist more often than the other four siblings combined. If there is not equality of outcomes among people born to the same parents and raised under the same roof, why should equality of outcomes be expected or assumed when conditions are not nearly so comparable? Firstborns were also a majority of the finalists in two-child, three-child, and four-child families. Such results are a challenge to believers in either heredity or environment 
as those terms are conventionally used. IQ data from Britain, Germany, and the United States showed that the average IQ of firstborn children was higher than the average IQ of their later-born siblings. Moreover, the average IQ of second-born children as a group was higher than the average IQ of third-born children. A similar pattern was found among young men given mental tests for military service in the Netherlands. The firstborn averaged higher mental test scores than their siblings, and the other siblings likewise averaged higher scores than those born after them. Similar results were found in mental test results for Norwegians. The sample sizes in these studies ranged into the hundreds of thousands. These advantages of the firstborn seem to carry over into later life in many fields. Data on male medical students at the University of Michigan, class of 1968, showed that the proportion of firstborn men in that class was more than double the proportion of later-born men as a group, and more than 10 times the proportion among men who were fourth-born or later. A 1978 study of applicants to a medical school in New Jersey showed the firstborn overrepresented among the applicants, and still more so among the successful applicants. Most other countries do not have as high a proportion of their young people go on to a college or university education as in the United States. But, whatever the proportion in a given country, the firstborn tend to go on to higher education more often than do later siblings. A study of Britons in 2003 showed that 22% of those who are the eldest child went on to receive a degree, compared to 11% of those who were the fourth child and 3% of those who were the tenth child. A study of more than 20,000 young people in late 20th century France showed that 18% of those males who were an only child completed four years of college, compared to 16% of male firstborn children and just 7% of males who were fifthborn or laterborn. Among females, the disparity was slightly larger. 23% who were an only child completed four years of college, compared to 19% who were firstborn and just 5% of those who were fifthborn or later. Birth order differences persist as people move into their careers. A study of about 4,000 Americans concluded that the decline in average earnings is even more pronounced than the decline in education between those born earlier and those born later. Other studies have shown the firstborn to be overrepresented among lawyers in the greater Boston area and among members of Congress. Of the 29 original astronauts in the Apollo program that put a man on the moon, 22 were either firstborn or an only child. The firstborn and the only child were also overrepresented among leading composers of classical music. Consider how many things are the same for children born to the same parents and raised under the same roof. Race, the family gene pool, economic level, cultural values, educational opportunities, parents' educational and intellectual levels, as well as the family's relatives, neighbors, and friends. And yet the difference in birth order alone has made a demonstrable difference in outcomes. Whatever the general advantages or disadvantages the children in a particular family may have, the only obvious advantage that applies only to the firstborn, or to an only child, is the undivided attention of the parents during early childhood development. The fact that twins tend to average several points lower IQs than people born singly reinforces this inference. Conceivably, the lower average IQs of twins might have originated in the womb, but when one of the twins is stillborn or dies early, the surviving twin averages an IQ closer to that of people born singly. This suggests that with twins, as with other children, the divided or undivided attention of the parents may be key. In addition to quantitatively different amounts of parental attention available to children born earlier and later than their siblings, there are also qualitative differences in parental attention to children in general from one social class to another. Children of parents with professional occupations have been found to hear 2,100 words per hour, while children from working class families hear 1,200 words per hour. 
and children from families on welfare hear 600 words per hour. Other studies suggest that there are also qualitative differences in the manner of parent-child interactions in different social classes. Against this background, expectations or assumptions of equal or comparable outcomes from children raised in such different ways have no basis. Nor can different outcomes in schools, colleges, or employment be automatically attributed to those who teach, grade, or hire them, when empirical evidence shows that how people were raised can affect how they turn out as adults. It is not simply that they may have different levels of ability as adults. People from different social backgrounds may also have different goals and priorities, a possibility paid little or no attention in many studies that measure how much opportunity there is by how much upward movement takes place, as if everyone is equally striving to move up. Most notable achievements involve multiple factors, beginning with a desire to succeed in that particular endeavor and a willingness to do what it takes, without which all the native ability in an individual and all the opportunity in a society mean nothing, just as the desire and the opportunity mean nothing without the ability. What this suggests, among other things, is that an individual, a people, or a nation may have some, many, or most of the prerequisites for a given achievement without having any real success in producing that achievement. And yet that individual, that people, or that nation may suddenly burst upon the scene with spectacular success when whatever the missing factor or factors are finally get added to the mix. Poor and backward nations that suddenly move to the forefront of human achievements include Scotland, beginning in the 18th century, and Japan, beginning in the 19th century. Both had rapid rises as time is measured in history. Scotland was for centuries one of the poorest, most economically and educationally lagging nations on the outer fringes of European civilization. There was said to be no 14th century Scottish baron who could write his own name. And yet in the 18th and 19th centuries, a disproportionate number of the leading intellectual figures in Britain were of Scottish ancestry, including James Watt in engineering, Adam Smith in economics, David Hume in philosophy, Joseph Black in chemistry, Sir Walter Scott in literature, and James Mill and John Stuart Mill in economic and political writings. Among the changes that had occurred among the Scots was their Protestant church's crusade promoting the idea that everyone should learn to read, so as to be able to read the Bible personally rather than have priests tell them what it says and means. Another change was a more secular but still fervent crusade to learn the English language, which replaced their native Gaelic among the Scottish lowlanders, and thereby opened up far more fields of written knowledge to the Scots. In some of those fields, including medicine and engineering, the Scots eventually excelled the English and became renowned internationally. These were mostly Scottish lowlanders, rather than highlanders, who continued to speak Gaelic for generations longer. Japan was likewise a poor, poorly educated, and technologically backward nation as late as the middle of the 19th century. The Japanese were astonished to see a train for the first time, that train being presented to them by American Commodore Matthew Perry, whose ships visited Japan in 1853. Yet, after later generations of extraordinary national efforts to catch up with the Western world technologically, these efforts led to Japan's being in the forefront of technology in a number of fields in the latter half of the 20th century. Among other things, Japan produced a bullet train that exceeded anything produced in the United States. Other extraordinary advances have been made by a particular people rather than by a nation-state. We've become so used to seeing numerous world-class performances by Jewish intellectual figures in the arts and sciences that it is necessary to note that this has been an achievement that burst upon the world as a widespread social phenomenon in the 19th and 20th centuries, even though there had been isolated Jewish intellectual figures of international stature in some earlier centuries. As a distinguished economic historian put it, despite their vast advantage in literacy and human capital for many centuries, Jews played an almost negligible role in the history of science and technology, 
before and during the early Industrial Revolution, and the great advances in science and mathematics between 1600 and 1750 do not include work associated with Jewish names. Whatever the potentialities of Jews during the era of the Industrial Revolution, and despite their literacy and other human capital, there was often little opportunity for them to gain access to the institutions of the wider society in Europe where the Industrial Revolution began. Jews were not admitted to most universities in Europe prior to the 19th century. Late in the 18th century, the United States became a pioneer in granting Jews the same legal rights as everyone else, as a result of the Constitution's general ban against federal laws that discriminate on the basis of religion. France followed suit after the Revolution of 1789, and other nations began easing or eliminating various bans on Jews in various times and places during the 19th century. In the wake of these developments, Jews began to flow, and then to flood, into universities. By the 1880s, for example, Jews were 30% of all the students at Vienna University. The net result in the late 19th century and in the 20th century was a relatively sudden proliferation of internationally renowned Jewish figures in many fields, including fields in which Jews were virtually non-existent among the leaders in earlier centuries. From 1870 to 1950, Jews were greatly overrepresented among prominent figures in the arts and sciences, relative to their proportion of the population in various European countries and in the United States. In the second half of the 20th century, with Jews being less than 1% of the world's population, they received 22% of the Nobel Prizes in chemistry, 32% in medicine, and 32% in physics. Here, as in other very different contexts, changes in the extent to which prerequisites are met completely can have dramatic effects on outcomes in a relatively short time as history is measured. The fact that Jews rose dramatically in certain fields after various barriers were removed does not mean that other groups would do the same if barriers against them were removed, for the Jews already had various other prerequisites for such achievements, notably widespread literacy during centuries when illiteracy was the norm in the world at large, and Jews needed only enough additional prerequisites to complete the required ensemble. Conversely, China was for centuries the most technologically advanced nation in the world, especially during what were called the Middle Ages in Europe. The Chinese had cast iron a thousand years before the Europeans. The Chinese admiral led a voyage of discovery that was longer than Columbus's voyage, generations before Columbus's voyage, and in ships far larger and technologically more advanced than Columbus's ships. One crucial decision in 15th century China, however, set in motion a radical change in the relative positions of the Chinese and the Europeans. Like other nations demonstrably more advanced than others, the Chinese regarded those others as innately inferior, as barbarians, just as the Romans likewise regarded peoples beyond the domain of the Roman Empire. Convinced by the exploratory voyages of its ships that there was nothing to be learned from other peoples in other places, the government of China decided in 1433 not only to discontinue such voyages, but to forbid such voyages, or the building of ships capable of making such voyages, and to greatly reduce the influence of the outside world on Chinese society. Plausible as this decision might have seemed at the time, it came as Europe was emerging from its dark ages of retrogression in the wake of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and was now experiencing a renaissance of progress in many ways, including progress based on developing things that had originated in China, such as printing and gunpowder. Columbus's ships, though not up to the standards of those once made in China, were sufficient to cross the Atlantic Ocean in search of a route to India and to inadvertently make the world-changing discovery of the whole hemisphere. In short, Europe had expanding opportunities for progress, both within itself and in the larger world opened up to it by its expansion into the other half of the planet, at a time when China's rulers had chosen the path of isolation, not total, but substantial isolation. The straitjacket of isolation inflicted on many parts of the world by geographic barriers that left whole peoples and nations both poor and backward, was inflicted on China 
by its own rulers. The net result over the centuries that followed was that China fell behind in an era of great technological and economic progress elsewhere in the world. In the pitiless international jungle, this meant that other countries not only surpassed China, but imposed their will on a vulnerable China which declined to the status of a third world country, partly subordinated to other countries in various ways, including a loss of territory as the Portuguese took over the port of Macau, the British took over the port of Hong Kong, and eventually, Japan seized much territory on the mainland of China. What China lost were not the prerequisites represented by the qualities of its people, but the wisdom of its rulers who, with one crucial decision, the loss of just one prerequisite, forfeited the country's preeminence in the world. That the qualities of the Chinese people endured was evidenced by the worldwide success of millions of overseas Chinese emigrants, who arrived in many countries in Southeast Asia and in the Western Hemisphere, often destitute and with little education, and yet rose over the generations to prosperity, and in many individual cases, even great wealth. The contrast between the fate of China and the fate of the overseas Chinese was demonstrated when, as late as 1994, the 57 million overseas Chinese produced as much wealth as the billion people living in China. Among the more dire national projects that failed among other nations, fortunately in this case, for lack of one prerequisite, was the attempt by Nazi Germany to create a nuclear bomb. Hitler not only had such a program, he had it before the United States launched a similar program. Germany was, at that point, in the forefront of science and nuclear physics. However, it so happened that at that particular juncture in history, many of the leading nuclear physicists in the world were Jewish, and Hitler's fanatical anti-Semitism not only precluded their participation in his nuclear bomb project, his threat to the survival of the Jews in general led many of these physicists to leave Europe and immigrate to the United States. It was expatriate Jewish nuclear physicists who brought the threat of a Nazi nuclear bomb to President Roosevelt's attention and urged the creation of an American program to create such a bomb before the Nazis got one. Moreover, Jewish scientists, both expatriate and American, played a major role in the development of the American nuclear bomb. These scientists were a key resource that the United States had and that Hitler could not have as a result of his own racial fanaticism. The whole world escaped the prospect of mass annihilation and or crushing subjugation to Nazi oppression and dehumanization because Hitler's nuclear program lacked one key factor. He had some leading nuclear physicists, but not enough. Institutions China was by no means the only nation to forfeit a superior position among the nations of the world. Ancient Greece and the Roman Empire were far more advanced than the British or Scandinavian contemporaries, who were largely illiterate at a time when Greeks and Romans had landmark intellectual giants and were laying the intellectual and material foundations of Western civilization. As late as the 10th century, a Muslim scholar noted that Europeans grew more pale the farther north you go, and also that the farther they are to the north, the more stupid, gross, and brutish they are. Such a correlation between complexion and ability would be taboo today, but there is little reason to doubt that a very real correlation existed among Europeans as of the time when this observation was made. The fact that Northern Europe and Western Europe would move ahead of Southern Europe economically and technologically many centuries later was a heartening sign that backwardness in a given era does not mean backwardness forever. But that does not deny that great economic and social disparities have existed among peoples and nations at given times and places. Particular institutions, such as business enterprises, have likewise risen or fallen dramatically over time. Any number of leading American businesses today began at the level of the lowly peddler, Macy's and Bloomingdale's, for example, or were started by men born in poverty, J.C. Penney, F.W. Woolworth, or began in a garage, Hewlett-Packard. 
Conversely, there have been leading businesses that have declined from the pinnacles of profitable success, even into bankruptcy, sometimes with the loss of just one prerequisite. For more than 100 years, the Eastman Kodak Company was the dominant firm in the photographic industry throughout the world. It was George Eastman who, in the late 19th century, first made photography accessible to great numbers of ordinary people with his cameras and film that did not require the technical expertise of professional photographers. Before Kodak cameras and film appeared, professional photographers had to know how to apply light-sensitive emulsions to photographic plates that went into big, cumbersome cameras and know how to later chemically develop the images taken and then print pictures. Small and simple Kodak cameras and rolls of Kodak film in place of photographic plates enable people with no technical knowledge at all to take pictures and then leave the developing and printing of those pictures to others. Kodak cameras and film spread internationally. For decades, Eastman Kodak sold most of the film in the entire world. It continued to sell most of the film in the world market, even after film began to be produced in other countries and Fujifilm from Japan made major inroads in the late 20th century, gaining a 21% market share by 1993. Eastman Kodak also supplied both amateur and professional photographers with a wide range of photographic equipment and supplies based on film technology. For more than a century, Eastman Kodak clearly had all the prerequisites for success. As of 1988, the company employed more than 145,000 workers around the world, and its annual revenues peaked at nearly $16 billion in 1996. Yet its worldwide dominance came to a remarkably sudden end in the early 21st century, when its income plummeted and the company collapsed into bankruptcy. Just one key factor changed in the photographic industry, the substitution of digital cameras for film cameras. Worldwide sales of film cameras peaked in the year 2000, when those sales were more than four times the sale of digital cameras. But three years later, digital camera sales in 2003 surpassed film camera sales for the first time. Then, just two years later, digital camera sales exceeded the peak sales that film cameras had reached in 2000, and now, digital camera sales were more than four times the sales of film cameras. Eastman Kodak, which had produced the world's first electronic image sensor, was undone by its own invention, which other companies developed to higher levels in digital cameras. These included electronics companies not initially in the photographic industry, such as Sony, whose share of the digital camera market was more than double that of Eastman Kodak by the end of the 20th century and in the early 21st century, when digital camera sales skyrocketed. With the sudden collapse of the market for film cameras, Kodak's vast array of photographic apparatus and supplies, based on film technology, suddenly lost most of their market, and the Eastman Kodak company disintegrated economically. Its mastery of existing prerequisites for success meant nothing when just one of the prerequisites changed. Nor was this descent from industrial world dominance to bankruptcy unique to Eastman Kodak. Nature In nature, as in human endeavors, there can be multiple prerequisites for various natural phenomena, and these multiple prerequisites can likewise lead to very skewed distributions of outcomes. While some have found it surprising that genetic similarities between chimpanzees and human beings extend to well over 90% of their genetic makeup, what may be more surprising is that even a microscopic worm-like creature also has most of its genetic makeup match that of human beings. But having many or most prerequisites can count for nothing as far as producing the ultimate outcome. Multiple factors have to come together in order to create tornadoes, and more than 90% of all the tornadoes in the entire world occur in just one country the United States. Yet there is nothing startlingly unique about either the climate or the terrain of the United States that cannot be found, as individual features, in various other places around the world. But all the prerequisites for tornadoes do not come together as often in the rest of the world 
as in the United States. Similarly, lightning occurs more often in Africa than in Europe and Asia put together, even though Asia alone is larger than Africa or any other continent. Among many other skewed distributions in nature is the fact that earthquakes are as common around the rim of the Pacific Ocean, both in Asia and in the Western Hemisphere, as they are rare around the rim of the Atlantic. Among other highly skewed outcomes in nature is that some geographic settings produce many times more species than others. The Amazon region of South America is one such setting. South America's Amazon Basin contains the world's largest expanse of tropical rainforest. Its diversity is renowned. On a single Peruvian tree, Wilson found 43 species of ants comparable to the entire ant fauna of the British Isles. Similar gross disparities have also been found between the number of species of fish in the Amazon region of South America compared to the number in Europe. Eight times as many species of fish have been caught in an Amazonian pond the size of a tennis court as exist in all the rivers of Europe. Implications What can we conclude from all these examples of highly skewed distributions of outcomes around the world? Neither in nature nor among human beings are either equal or randomly distributed outcomes automatic. On the contrary, grossly unequal distributions of outcomes are common, both in nature and among people, in circumstances where neither genes nor discrimination are involved. What seems a more tenable conclusion is that, as economic historian David S. Landis put it, the world has never been a level playing field. The idea that it would be a level playing field, if it were not for either genes or discrimination, is a preconception in defiance of both logic and facts. Nothing is easier to find than sins among human beings, but to automatically make those sins the sole or even primary cause of different outcomes among different peoples is to ignore many other reasons for those disparities. Geographic differences are one among other factors that make for a skewed distribution of outcomes. Coastal peoples have long tended to be more prosperous and more advanced than people of the same race living farther inland, while people living in river valleys have likewise tended to be more prosperous and more advanced than people living up in the mountains. Most of the most fertile land in the world is in the temperate zones and little or none in the tropics. Areas that are both near the sea and in the temperate zones have 8% of the world's inhabited land area, 23% of the world's population, and 53% of the world's gross domestic product. Neither genetics nor discrimination is either necessary or sufficient to account for such skewed outcomes. This does not mean that either genes or discrimination can simply be dismissed as a possibility in any given circumstance, but only that hard evidence would be required to substantiate either of these possibilities, which remain testable hypotheses without being foregone conclusions. Given how widely, how long, and how strongly each of these two explanations, that is, genes or discrimination, has dominated thinking, laws and policies in various parts of the world, it is no small matter to escape from having painted ourselves into a corner with either of these sweeping preconceptions. Two of the monumental catastrophes of the 20th century, Nazism and Communism, led to the slaughter of millions of human beings in the name of either ridding the world of the burden of inferior races or ridding the world of exploiters responsible for the poverty of the exploited. While each of these beliefs might have been testable hypotheses, their greatest political triumphs came as dogmas placed beyond the reach of evidence or logic. Neither Hitler's Mein Kampf nor Marx's Capital was an exercise in hypothesis testing. While Karl Marx's vast three-volume economic treatise was a far greater intellectual achievement, exploitation was at no point in its 2,500 pages treated as a testable hypothesis, but was instead the foundation assumption 
on which an elaborate intellectual superstructure was built. And that proved to be a foundation of quicksand. Getting rid of capitalist exploiters in communist countries did not raise the living standards of workers, even to levels common in many capitalist countries, where workers were presumably still being exploited as Marxists conceived the term. Discrimination as an explanation of economic and social disparities may have a similar emotional appeal for many, but we can at least try to treat these and alternative theories as testable hypotheses. The historic consequences of treating beliefs as sacred dogmas beyond the reach of evidence or logic should be enough to dissuade us from going down that road again, despite how exciting or emotionally satisfying political dogmas and the crusades resulting from those dogmas can be, or how convenient and sparing us the drudgery and discomfort of having to think through our own beliefs or test them against facts. So I ended up reading actually the entire first chapter of Thomas Sowell's Discrimination and Disparities. What does this have to do with the clip of that deranged kid that I was playing for you in the beginning of the episode? It has to do with the fact that the underlying premise of so many things that you will hear from the woke is this idea that if there is any disparity in outcome, it means that by definition it's the result of racism. Clearly, in this first chapter of Thomas Sowell's book, he has completely obliterated this notion and he has shown you that disparities abound across individuals, institutions, and even in nature for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with either genes or discrimination. So treating this as a dogmatic premise, something that has to be believed at all costs, something that is not subject to testing as any other testable hypothesis should be, is, as Thomas Sowell points out, something that is quite dangerous and a road that we do not want to be going down again. As he said, treating beliefs as sacred dogmas beyond the reach of evidence or logic should be enough to dissuade us from going down that road again. So we can summarize his point with the first paragraph of the last section entitled Implications, and that is, what can we conclude from all these examples of highly skewed distributions of outcomes around the world? Neither in nature nor among human beings are either equal or randomly distributed outcomes automatic. On the contrary, grossly unequal distributions of outcomes are common both in nature and among people, in circumstances where neither genes nor discrimination are involved. And this is a premise that Sowell has challenged more persuasively than anyone else, and he's done it in a dozen books. Coleman Hughes summarizes it as the following. He says, One way he pressure tests this assumption is by finding conditions in which we know with near certainty that racial bias does not exist, and then seeing if outcomes are in fact equal. For example, between white Americans of French descent and white Americans of Russian descent, it's safe to assume that neither group suffers more bias than the other, if for no other reason than that they're hard to tell apart. Nevertheless, the French descendants earn only 70 cents for every dollar earned by the Russian Americans. Why such a large gap? Sowell's basic insight is that the question is posed backward. Why would we think that two ethnic groups with different histories, demographics, social patterns, and cultural values would nevertheless achieve identical results? So the lesson here, in many ways, is that any time someone presents you with an ideology, particularly an ideology that they believe very fervently, you can always find and restate the ideology as an assertion of a certain hypothesis. And if you can do that, you should demand that we be able to test that hypothesis. And even a cursory overview 
of the facts of individuals, institutions, and even nature, as Thomas Sowell did in this first chapter here, shows you that the hypothesis that all disparities among individuals and groups of people is due to discrimination is simply not borne out by the facts. That's it for episode number two. We'll be back next week for episode number three, so please be sure to subscribe. If you're listening on YouTube, subscribe to the channel. If you're on iTunes or Spotify or another podcast app, subscribe there so you don't miss an episode. It would also be much appreciated if you leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. It really helps me reach a larger audience. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you back here next week.